School is back in session, so shout out to all the students, teachers, and families out there experiencing their first TGIF of the school year. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm here with co-host David Figler and Nevada Independent reporter Jacob Solis. And we're talking about a controversial food pantry downtown, why a street food vendor and a police officer had an altercation, and AI coming to a public meeting near you. It's Friday, August 11th. I'm Vogue Robinson, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. David, Jacob, good morning. How are y'all doing? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Morning, Vogue. Morning, Jacob. Morning, Las Vegas. Yes. Oh, we're going to put you on TV with that. (laughs) That's it. That was my energy spurt. Done. (laughs) Done and done. No more for the rest of the day. You're ruining my opening, people. (laughs) Okay, y'all. So, I mean, oh, okay. We're going to just start off at the bottom. And now we're here. There is a downtown food pantry that I think, David, you know a lot about, but uh, it's it had an operating license, but now it's being contested. David, please explain why it is so hard to just give people food. Well, this is a news item from my own backyard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, property in question is about two blocks from where I live, so I do know a lot about it. In fact, the property, which is an apartment complex for lower-income folks had to have a public meeting because they're going in front of the planning commission soon. And my neighborhood helped host that meeting because Mm -hmm. we are so close by and we were having a neighborhood meeting anyway. And I am the uh, outgoing president of my neighborhood. So we're like, sure, come on by. We'll bring lots of people for you to hear your story. And about 75 people did show up. That's kind of the typical uh, attendance that we get at our neighborhood meetings. We have a very strong neighborhood, which probably plays into the story, but also some of the surrounding businesses on the area that is, for listeners, Las Vegas Boulevard, basically just south of Charleston. So right on the cusp of the arts district, if you're kind of thinking about it in those terms. Mm. The story is both very simplistic and extraordinarily complicated. So I'm going to do my best to kind of break it down. There was a a motel that was sitting on Las Vegas Boulevard for a very, very long time. About a a decade or more ago, there was a uh, group in town that people know as Veterans Village. Veterans Village was run by an individual who had a vision that he was going to help house veterans who were housing insecure, provide them with services, et cetera. And so that was the first endeavor for Veterans Village. So they went to the city, they got licensing to turn it from a motel to what's called a residential hotel. A residential hotel is very much like an apartment complex with very mm-hmm. short-term leases in it. And so people were paying money, typically in the seven, $800 range, so that's well below market value for these rooms that were at this complex. And as part of moving into this complex, the prior owners, Veterans Village, were providing foodstuffs and other support stuff so people wouldn't become 
housing insecure or, or homeless. And so that operated for a while. They changed their name for reasons no one's really sure. That operator of Veterans Village left. There was a big, big story in the Review Journal that suggested that some of the practices that were going on there were worthy of scrutiny. Let's just put it that way, because they are a little litigious. Mm-mm. And then a new operator came in, and that new operator is a group called Caridad, which it had been operating and still is operating as a nonprofit homeless service provider in the community, doing all sorts of good stuff through the community, gardens, community gardens and things of that, getting people job training, people putting people to work, et cetera. So uh, quickly now, because now I got to go into overdrive, they are essentially operating on the same plan that Veterans Village had been operating for a very long time. They both had an agreement with a company in town, a nonprofit called Three Square that people are probably very familiar with Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because Three Square has food distribution and food pantries all over the valley from Henderson to Summerlin uh, to help battle food insecurity. One of those pantries is located at this property, which is called Hebron. And some people, even though it's been operating as a pantry for a decade, called code enforcement and complained that they didn't have the proper licenses. And so now the city of Las Vegas is requiring them because they don't have a license specifically to allow food distribution because food pantry requires it being open to the public, requiring them to get a license to operate a homeless shelter or a mission, which as you can imagine, Vogue, has caused some consternation in the neighborhood. And that's kind of where we are right now. Wow. So, yeah, there's more to it, but that's kind of the basic. Yeah. Jacob, do you feel like this is, I mean, does this sound to you like a classic, just NIMBY and not in my backyard debate? Like, shouldn't we meet unhoused people where they are instead of putting services far away outside of where they live? Yeah, for sure. So understanding that I, I don't know more of this background that David has hinted there is, but I just on those facts, like, yeah, I don't know why it is that suddenly now, right, businesses are extremely concerned. And certainly, you know, we're looking at downtown, the sort of gentrification of downtown and the sort of like economic mm-hmm. revitalization vis-a-vis sort of not actually taking care of social problems, but maybe pushing them elsewhere, not in the area mm-hmm. we're trying to quote unquote revitalize, right? So I think that certainly there is at least some nimbyism is pl- at play, right? But also this also is a tangential issue. You know, I don't know that cordon- code enforcement necessarily solves the issue of people who need housing getting that housing. And so this may create more problems than it solves, just based on what I've heard here. You know, Jacob, the whole concept of revitalization is at the center of this sort of new controversy. I think a lot of people are looking at that area on Vegas Boulevard, right on the edge of the Arts District, as being ripe for Mm -hmm. uh, renovation, revitalization, new kind of like uh, gentrification, really. And they're saying that these folks, the developers, et cetera, are like a homeless shelter or a mission is incompatible, but it begs the question, is that what this even is? I mean, this is really an apartment complex where people are living. They aren't homeless because by definition, 
This is where they live and pay right. to live. It's not free like the rescue mission or Catholic charities or something that's a more traditional homeless shelter. But it's this food pantry that's causing the consternation now from the operator saying half of the stuff in the pantry actually goes to the people who live here because we don't discriminate. Anyone can come up. You could drive mm-hmm. up in a Mercedes Benz. Now, that's silly if you do. But if you do, you come in, and you go, I need some of these staples, these food staples that Three Square provides throughout the valley. We give it to them. And they say it breaks down about 50-50. So it really is kind of, I think, in a lot of ways, this misconception about what a food pantry is and what it does for a community. Is it just for the homeless or is it for food insecurity gaps? And and that's kind of the bigger question there. But the city is really kind of taking a hard line here. Well, what's interesting, too, is, you know, that the model works. And by that, I mean, we have proof because we have the Solidarity Fridge, which is in the middle of a community mm-hmm. on somebody's property in her front yard. So not it's not in her backyard. It's in Victoria's front yard right. <laughs> for Solidarity mm-hmm. Fridge. And she, you know, put out, you know, a survey to her community and said, hey, I want to put a fridge in the front yard. It can be for anybody who lives here or anybody who just walks through a block. We're not going to have a long conversation. Please label the food, say, when you put it in. And there's also a pantry. So that's really frustrating when I think about it to say, here's here's a situation where it works on the east side, and then here we have it trying to occur on LVB, and there's pushback from the government and from other businesses who are afraid of like, like don't feed the homeless as though they're animals in a zoo. Like people are trapped in poverty and you're saying don't feed them. And it doesn't work for me. And I think if if more of the people were fed and if we kept continuing to provide better services, then we could eliminate what what they tend to label as the homeless problem, which we would be providing a solution. And it's it's asinine because there are so many people. I, I just picked up a friend who works at a law office downtown. And as I was picking her up, like there were four or five people just sleeping in an empty lot right beside her offices. And I was like, damn, you know, I hadn't realized how how many people there are and how much further into that downtown area they are. Yeah, and that's the issue is that, you know, especially with this food pantry per se, the talk of homelessness keeps coming up, even though, again, food pantries aren't exclusively for homeless people. They're for people who have food insecurity, which isn't exclusively homeless people. And the city, because I read the Planning Commission's opinion on it, basically, they they say that whether they uh, recommend denial or approval, they're recommending denial. And the main crux seem to be is this thought that, well, they shouldn't be providing homeless services. We do that down at the homeless courtyard. Everything should be consolidated down at the homeless courtyard. Not when Brian Knudsen came on the show and said that it was not enough. Not not when we have officials admitting and saying directly. Yeah. I mean, he gave it a C plus rating on our podcast. I I think honestly, the thing that for me is worth scrutinizing is the timing, right? You mentioned like, why now? Why does it matter now that this uh, facility needs this particular license, right? When it's been operating this way for so long, what's changed? And I think the answer to that question, depending on who you are, I guess, and depending on where you sit Mm. on the fence on this is pretty damning. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's two theories there, right? One is it that the prior operator was getting some slack from the city. The other one is that we've gotten to such a point down in the Arts District where that property is so valuable that there are forces that are saying, look, this just isn't compatible with our vision and we want to get rid of them. Either way, it doesn't sound great. Now, look, this this property may have other issues, other problems, but 
to call them a homeless shelter or a mission or providing homeless services. I mean, Jiminy, if 7-Eleven lets you go in there and get free water, are they providing homeless services? I mean, if if a restaurant's being nice and they give someone a slice of pizza who walks inside because they look like they're in rough shape, are they now providing homeless services and have to get the same sort of licensing? It, it seems like the city should be working with these individuals. I, I'm very much pro there being pantries in our community because I don't equate them with somehow only being for the homeless. Mm. Yeah. And having covered higher ed for a long time, I mean, every college in America, well, I don't know about every, but like a lot of them have food pantries, right? Because frankly, one of the most insecure food populations can be college students, right? Because all of their money is going towards other things, right? And so I think people don't, (laughs) people have an idea of who's food insecure that is often extremely wrong. And so that is probably something to keep in mind. Let's talk about food in another way. Let's talk about our street vendors out in the valley because there was an altercation between a Metro police officer and uh, a street food vendor. And of course, there's video footage because uh, apparently Metro was capable of uh, releasing this this body camera footage. <laughs> there's some other footage they still haven't released. But anyways, there was a signing of a bill, SB 92, that legitimizes street food vendors and small businesses. And uh, it was very clear that all of the counties are going to have to come up with their own like set of rules and guidelines for what it takes to have a license or permit. Uh, you know, what are what are the sanitary requirements and conditions? But at the very least, the goal, it seemed like this was a middle ground to say, we know that there are barriers between, you know, the people who are vending food on the block and and the government. And so let's find a way to bridge this gap, make it easier and less confusing for how to get your permits. And so to make sure that whoever's serving food from wherever they're serving food out, they're doing it in a safe way that is, you know, not going to make people sick. So that felt like that was the goal of the bill, but it it still had a lot of barriers to it. So uh, out by the Las Vegas sign, by the Las- Welcome to Las Vegas, fabulous Las Vegas sign, I watched one video, but of course, you know, one video isn't going to tell the full story. But in watching it, it seemed like there was just a big language barrier between the officer and the vendor. And so, you know, he was telling the guy, like, you got to pack up. And then after a while, the guy kind of, the the vendor just kind of shirked <laughs> the cop off. And so the cop kept getting closer and closer to him at a certain point, yelling obscenities at him, telling him to get on the ground, to turn around and kept trying to push him up against the fence. And also saying, Vogue, on the video, mm-hmm. now you've pissed me off. Right. Well, I mean, and that was there. like literally mm-hmm. claiming his state of mind on the video of being uh, emotional and pissed. You know, he seemed really unregulated. And honestly, it was really. <sighs> I'm embarrassed for the cops. <laughs> I'm so sorry, y'all. I was so embarrassed for them because it was like he was trying. You are the queen of empathy and I love you for that. He was trying to um, exert his his power and authority and this, the vendor who just didn't speak the same language was just like, I don't know why you're, t-. like, he just kind of looked at him like, I don't know why you're touching me. I don't know why you're screaming at me. But he was, they were in what felt like opposite emotional <laughs> spaces where the vendor was very calm and was just like, nah, and just kept shirking him off. And the, the cop kept just yelling at him, 
cursing at him and, and nothing worked. Eventually, somebody else came up and tried to do some more of the translating. Another cop came as backup. They turned the guy around, handcuffed him, and I think he's currently being detained. So, I mean... It sucks. It sucks. And it was a terrible, you know, it's just always terrible to see those videos. But this one was its own kind of WTF. So, I, Jacob, in, in your view, what are the levels of fail here? Well, it, frankly, there there is a level of failure from the, we'll, we'll call it the legislative imagination, because I think certainly this bill <laughs> came from a, uh, a good place, right? I think a lot of advocates wanted this. A lot of people wanted this, and it happened, right? Like the governor signed it. It, it wasn't per se a partisan issue, but there is like a mechanical element. Like we literally need to create new regulations. The county has to act. This is a process that could take months, that could stretch into next year. And like, if you're a food vendor, right, who maybe English isn't your first language, it's incumbent on the state that's created this new apparatus to make sure they know the new rules of the game, that they're not just mm. allowed to do whatever yet, right? If it means they're going to put themselves in these situations with law enforcement, who is currently enforcing the law, uh, which has not yet changed in Clark County, right? Because Clark County hasn't taken the steps to do the ordinance. So I think we've seen groups, um, I think, make the road, right? And and um, certainly the county have said that they're going to try and educate people and they're going to hold workshops and they're going to do all this stuff. But it's like when they passed the law in June, it is now August, um, hmm. they knew that they had to tell people that this, you know, it was going to take some time, right? Um, that they didn't, I think, is probably something to look at if if the state's going to try and do this again. And frankly, though, it's it's not anyone's first rodeo. This isn't the first time a law has sort of been implemented, you know, semi-disastrously because no one thought about how they should tell people what the new law is. So uh, it's just or how they should treat people in the interim, mm -hmm. because mm. there's obviously a spirit of law that comes with every passage. And even while we're waiting for formalized rules to come down from the various municipalities, there seems to be a consensus concept that we're going to be a little kinder, a little gentler with these food vendors to get them to a better place uh, and not just have the traditional law enforcement model of, mm. I don't know what that officer was trying to do there. We talked about in our prior CityCast episode here, Vogue, that typically, and I think this comes from the state statutes, is that you have Southern Nevada Health District out there enforcing these rules uh, about food vendors and that if they need backup from Metro, they, that they have that available. But here it seems like this was self-initiated by either this individual officer or maybe his command. And we don't know why. That, that has all been obscured right now. He came the day before. So according to the report, that, yeah. that police officer but why? came the why, day before. Why did this one cop come? I think... In my and this is like my imagination, but my, in my my imagination, this is his beat. Like this is his area that he's supposed mm. to patrol. So he came once and was like, "Hey, man, you can't you can't have you know you can't set up here." And then came back the next day and was like, "You're still here. I told you you can't be here." And I mean, oh, and that's what it sounds like came down. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is that an outlier position of law enforcement? Because typically, Southern Nevada Health District's involved. Now, I will say the Las Vegas sign is right across the street from a substation. So that might have had something to do with it, too. But are we even asking these questions, Jacob? Because it's really come down to, I think, a dichotomy in the media. A, people saying, oh, well, he was unlicensed. The cop had every right to enforce county code ordinances, et cetera. And then he got handsy and got arrested for assaulting an officer. Mm -hmm. And other people are saying, well, it's just a guy selling juice. Leave him the frig alone. So are we ever going to get to the bottom of this, you guys? Well, that 
<laughs> I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of this particular altercation, but I think certainly there needs to be some attempt. I mean, is it the health district? Is it Metro act like telling their officers doing more trainings with them saying like, we don't need to, like, we've got bigger fish to fry or something. I don't know. Hmm. And I think we've seen some commitment, I think, from Metro to say, like, oh, this isn't exactly what we wanted to happen, per se. Mm. And so mm. I think the real test is, is it, does this happen again in the intervening next couple of months? Because it will be a couple of months before this is finally ironed out. And so does it happen again? And if it does, okay, now clearly there's something going on that needs a deeper look. Right. It's going to be replicated, Vogue. I mean, there's going to be confrontations, again, with street vendors until the rules. But, you know, the law was signed. It was signed into law in June, you know. And we still have to wait for all the bureaucratic BS to, to happen. So what can be done while the law waits for the bureaucracy to catch up? Yes. And some of the comments that I saw, because there's an Instagram account called Brown Issues, and it's like a national account. Like their their follower count is massive. <laughs> so this is already like super viral. But one of the their members was saying, you know, well, there needs to be bilingual cops. That if you're going to be in areas and you're going to be working with people who you know speak a different language than you in this country then there needs to be cops that speak the languages of the people that they're serving. I think bilingual cops is a great first step because I think that this could have been easily diffused and could have been a lot simpler if there weren't that massive language barrier. And also just if old boy would have had just some kind of patience and understanding. I feel like it was too hot outside for him to be acting a fool, holding his little taser, and then being upset because he couldn't physically overpower this person who's selling juice. (laughs) Well, I I, want to see Southern Nevada Health District step up uh, during this interim period, mm. because it, it, as we discussed with them, with officials from Southern Nevada Health District on the podcast as well, you know, they know what's going on. They get mm-hmm. it. And I think that the the sort of the message from the new law should shape their protocols in the interim period, even though there's mm. no formal rules, but that they should definitely come up with this sort of interim protocol. And there should always be health district folks out there for this issue that we shouldn't just rely on law enforcement. I know a lot of people really support law enforcement with this specific incident because they say that the video shows, although it's a little ambiguous, this guy putting hands on the police officer who was trying to engage him. Now, whatever your view on that is, a lot of people are also thinking, well, why was he even being engaged? Why wasn't this just a health district intervention here? Why wasn't the health district going out there and explaining these things? And this could have gone really, really sideways really, really quick. And I'm very grateful that it didn't. I thought that there was, despite how we're describing it, some, you know, kudos for restraint. I mean, he pulled out a taser, yes, but he didn't use it. And he Mm. could have pulled out a weapon and he didn't do that. So Mm. good, good, good on that. But I think that once a police officer, you know, is in an emotional mindset saying, I'm pissed off at you and obviously knows that there's a language barrier, there should be a protocol at LVMPD to handle that differently, Mm. which could include A, calling the health district to come out or B, like you said, Vo, calling out a bilingual officer who's not pissed off. It's just the basics. <laughs> just the basics. Oh, look, speaking of language, look, we're doing it, guys. Oh, we're the doing flow. It. We're doing it. So that's one version of, of how language barriers are, are disruptive um, 
and, and could be solved. But there are other solutions that have been created. And North Las Vegas is testing out some interesting stuff. So, Jacob, fill us in on AI in North Las Vegas. Yeah. So the city of North Las Vegas, or the city council, I should say, purchased a real-time AI transcription software so that when um, bilingual or multilingual or people who only speak Spanish specifically are going up to speak, there are big screens that are sort of in real-time translating what's being said or people speak in English, you see the words in Spanish, you can like scan a QR code uh, so that you can go on your phone and see what a speaker's saying. And it's obviously not perfect. If anyone's ever used Google Translate, right, you know, AI tr- uh, translation software is not always great. If you ever used AI transcription software, you know that that is not always great. Really depends on how clearly the speaker is speaking. Um, yeah, that was going to be my question. Yeah. Like, how accurate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a it's an open question. But they've already done it with Spanish, and they expect to start doing it with Tagalog by the end of the year. And so uh, I think people are generally shout out to the Filipino community. <laughs> that's right. So I think people people are genuinely jazzed about in a new accessibility thing for a city. You know that I think what is it? Forty two percent we have here in this story uh, identify as Hispanic. And almost 38% of people speak a language other than English at home. Yeah. Hmm. You kind of touched on it a little bit. What are the upsides and potential downsides to this new technology, though? Because like, I have a friend who is an ASL tr- translator. And ASL is her first language, though. And so she was even telling me about some of the cultural nuances of some of the signs, some of the facial expressions that that go along with communicating with ASL. And so she was like, you know, not everybody speaks the same ASL either. And, you know, we're not talking in full sentences like the way that ASL is, is spoken, if you will, is communicated is so different than even how you and I speak English. So. I'm curious for for Spanish, you know, I'm thinking about the use of usted and and like where are the formalities and the Spanglish, right, that I think people might actually naturally speak. (laughs) Is AI, does AI speak Spanglish? Does AI translate Spanglish? Does AI know parquear? That's my question. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like most AI probably can't figure out like idiomatic speech or like, I don't know, slang just being casual, not sort of like saying precisely what you mean. AI is probably not going to have a fun time or it will translate it literally. Right. And then you're going to get some really weird, like, why are they talking like this? This isn't, this is an insane (laughs) sentence um, that has no grammatical relation to each other. Yeah. Some, some idiom might not make the, uh, make the grade. I, you know, I, I go to a lot and this is just who I am and I, I, I'm non-apologetic, but I go to a lot of government meetings in a lot of different sectors. You don't say I do. And I got to say, it's always been a, a bit of a shortcoming, especially with people who primarily speak another language of trying to be able to communicate or understand or follow what's going on in real time. And I always think of like those pictures of the UN, you know, where everyone has like a little ear pod mm. in and, and someone is translating everything into everyone's language all the time. And I'm like, why why can't we do that here? Right. And maybe this AI is sort of that solve that, you know, we, mm. we can at least get some kind of translation. I mean, I am worried if someone relies on a bad translation that AI created, I, I mean, I could think of a lot of hypotheticals. I'm not going to go down that horror list, but mm. woof, it could be rough. And <laughs> I don't know what happens at that point. Do they get rid of it if it causes a huge blow up or do they just continue to try to refine it? Mm. 
if we're going to build stadiums for sports, <laughs> then we should definitely go ahead on and hire human beings for communication, especially because a good chunk of communication is also facial expressions. Yeah. So I'm kind of nope. Nope, nope, nope. It's a, it's corny. You don't trust setting. the robots. Just say it. Uh, the robots are, I don't, I feel like we don't treat robots kindly enough to, to try and give them, put them in charge of, of things. They're going to turn on but, us. They're going to turn on us. Uh, you know, my Alexa and I, we have a good relationship because I don't have time <laughs> to get got by Alexa, y'all. But I mean, okay, let's think. I'm going to try to be nice here. The, the upside is, you know, efforts are being made. And in situations where maybe a translator is not available or multiple translators are not available because those meetings run long, then here is some kind of attempt. But I I think you have to have a real-time editor. I also had the visual of the UN translators, right? The The little earbuds in. Because I feel like that's probably the ideal, right? Where you have a human translator who understands the nuances of language, who understands tonal variation and idiomatic speech and all these little things that make language unique and can catch it in real time and make sure that people really get what's being said. That's great. Do I think that city governments like necessarily have the money or want to spend the money on something like that? Like I I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure that like say North Las Vegas city government would have spent the money on a translator mm. where they they have spent the money on this. So yeah, there's at least that. It. But it's putting a heck of a lot of faith in like the AI that the 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 company that makes the AI that they've done the due diligence to make sure that the product is good and works as intended and is not going to have big blow up problems right and certainly there's a there's a future a near future where they do try and expand it to more languages and maybe a language that's a little more finicky you know I think of um, you know the way that Chinese like really relies on tone right and the way that you mm. intonate stuff does that come across like I don't know it, does the software advance enough to handle a language like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I'm, I don't speak Chinese, so I don't know. But I, I do hope they they to carry insurance for these potential hypothetical blowups. I'm dead, David. <laughs> Get out of here! Oh, there's your inner lawyer coming out. So Always. I mean, let's let's imagine a future. So what do y'all think public meetings in Las Vegas are going to look like in a hundred years? So in twenty one twenty three. Well, I'll say in 2142, we're going to all have babblefish in our ears. And huh. there are some deep references there. And that's a, if you know, you know, for our audience. Wow. <laughs> David, you know, boo. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to explain it, but uh, essentially a device you could put in your ear that could universally translate all languages will be developed by that year. And I picked that year because that is the the answer to the universe. 42. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, thanks for all the fish. Jacob. If- there you go. <laughs> Vogue Robinson. Always getting David's references. Oh, Make me sick. I'll say that um, by, let's see, 2021, 20, 23, we will have all become mole people like the Morlocks from the time machine. Uh, we are living underground go. to avoid the Mad Max sandstorms and to- Better sci-fi. Yeah, 150 yeah. degree heat. But otherwise, you know, I'm pushing for it. Yeah, let's all have little little earpieces that we wear all the time. And so uh, we all speak uh, our own language, but it's a lingua franca because it's all insta-translated. Yeah, sure. Mm. Right? Or what's the international language? Um, Esperanto. Esperanto? We're all going to speak that in 2123. 
It's um, the universal language that no one speaks. Oh yeah, let's do it. I want to go full, you know, we need some magic, you guys. We need some, which one was it? I feel like it's in Atlantis. So Aqualad has a spell that makes it to where just it auto translates. Finally, some practical molecules. advice. <laughs> This so has gotten so unserious. I'm glad you're bringing it home, Vogue. <laughs> you're welcome. I got you. That's what I would love to have. And then it's just like, you speak your language, I speak my language. But but when we hear each other, I hear you speak my language and you hear me speak yours. And yeah. that's what we're going to have. I mean, I'm just proud of North Las Vegas for trying something because they know there's a need. And, mm. you know... Uh, good on them. I mean, that is important. Uh, Look, government should be accessible to everyone. North Las Vegas has one of the most diverse city councils as well. Yeah, I I don't like it when when a significant population is excluded from participation because of something as, you know, straightforward as a language barrier. I mean, come on, we, we can we can fix that. We're we're smart enough. We are smart enough, David. We're gonna do good things. Jacob and David, thanks so much for this good conversation. I look forward to talking to y'all in multiple languages. Thanks so much. Gracias. De nada. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our producers this week were Sonia Cho Swanson, Layla Muhammad, and A.K. Al Moomin. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets. And our hosts are David Figler and me, Vogue Robinson. Music is by OG Moose and All the Kimonos. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the Nuwubi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, go ahead and tell a friend, rate the show, and leave us a review. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Take care. Would you buy a house if a food pantry like this one was right around the corner? Well, saying that I can buy a house, I mean, that's putting the cart before the horse. But, uh... (laughs) Nice. Oh, Jacob, Uh, save up that indie money. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm on it.